Yo, everybody, it's Jude Joseph Lovell coming at you, all our listeners from the Allentown area, the great state of Pennsylvania, the United States of America. Welcome. This is episode 45 of the Book Exchange podcast. And as I mentioned, I'm Jude, I'm your co-host. And this morning I'm joined from Eastern Maryland by my co-host and co-founder, John Lovell. John, hello. Hello. How's it going, everybody? Good to be back. Yeah, you got that right. And today, John, there's no, I was trying to think of a clever way to get into this, you know, but perhaps you can dispense with cleverness when you're dealing with monsters, you know, uh, get, right. rid of, get rid of the cute and uh, just, get, just get, go, gird your loins and get your courage up. This is going to be a, a wondrous and sort of fantastic in a literal sense episode of the Book Exchange podcast. It's a, it's a topic that I was reflecting on this, John, it's a topic that we've probably been circling around as fans of sort of, you know, out there fantasy fiction um, sort of all along. And you could make an argument, John, that this is a topic that goes back as far as our reading lives do in a way. If you remember, we kind of explored during our um, 50 years of reading episode, you know, um, back in, uh, you know, the fall of 2020, we talked about some of our, you know, the origins of our reading. And one of the things that we shared was a big phase when we were maybe around my son, Kevin's age, you know, eight or nine or something like that of reading about, about monsters. And yep. we had a very large and lengthy phase in which reading about monsters and creatures was like one of our favorite things to do. Would you say that? Yeah. And I, I, I forgot about that part of that conversation, but it makes total sense. Um, I was, I wasn't going to bring this up, but one of the earliest books I ever remember getting into that was kind of like a, what we call nowadays, like a young adult novel. Let's see if you remember this book. <laughs> I, I must've been like 10. I just picked it off the shelf, but it was a book called Pardon My Fangs. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember who wrote it, but it was about like a, basically a high school vampire. So like, you know, <laughs> it's like pre twilight or something, you know, it's like, I don't know. I just remember, I remember reading that book in that, in that library that you're referring to, but yeah, you know, this goes all the way back, not just for us, but for all of humanity, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But you know, the monster or the monstrous uh, has been long, as long as we've been able to imagine anything. So it's another rich topic that we have for you here on the book exchange podcast. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure we will get into that, you know, like, um, there's a great deal of psychology, you know, in human psychology that that's behind this whole topic. Um, but it's also just going to be a great deal of fun. You know, I think the the monster <laughs> genres are subject. And, you know, one of the things we'll discuss today is where you can go direction wise when you're in terms of what a monster even is. Right. But like, uh, right. you know, that it's just a lot of fun, you know, so this is, this is almost like, you know, it feels like a little bit of a free pass or a layup 
And I, I, although I think we've got a lot of good ideas for books to explore and I'm sure it'll take us in interesting different directions. You know, this doesn't feel like the most labor intensive of our topics. And I like, and I'm saying that in a good way. Absolutely. I mean, this is just, this is one of our episodes that's meant to be a little bit more fun. And, uh, you know, we cover some heavy stuff here from time to time, but this one is intended to be fun. I hope people enjoy the conversation and, you know, get some thinking about, you know, some of their favorite creatures in in the literary world, because whether you're even a monster or a horror person or not, they're going to be, I mean, you look at the popula popularity of something like the Harry Potter series, for example, or Lord of the Rings, or, you know, they're part of our psyche, as you said, and, and everybody's got at least one or two literary monsters that they're going to remember. Yep. Yep. That's all that is true. So we're going to, we're going to get into it here. Um, it sounds like it's going to be fun. So, I mean, just without, um, further ado, really, I don't really have any administrative notes. I'm even going to eschew repeating the, uh, the website and the email address, but just make sure you remember to stay in contact with us. There's things you'd like us to cover. Is there anything administratively you want to say? No, not really. I, I am going to point out, I just looked it up. The, the book, Pardon My Fangs, was written by Elizabeth Star Hill. And I, I'm trying to find out when it came out, but I'm going to say it was like late 70s or early 80s or something. But, uh, <laughs> you know, do you remember that book? Uh, oh, <laughs> That's a great one. Only in your invoking it today, it just kind of did one of those time machine things with me. But um, <laughs> what a great title. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, way ahead of like Twilight and all that stuff. But it was buried there in the bit in the under the rock, you know, until you excavated it moments ago for me. And apparently it's way out of print. And I'm looking at a picture of the of the the cover and it like it, like that moment in Ratatouille, it just literally just shot me back to the between the bookshelves <laughs> in the uh berkeley heights new jersey library about i'm telling you about like 1980 81 so anyway that's the kind of show it is this time folks and uh hope you'll come along for the ride yeah well shout out to you john make sure that goes on the list of books mentioned you know the whoever that writer is and wherever she is now you know she gets points for burying her book in our psyche like that you know but <laughs> but um Anyway, let's uh, let, well, let's stick to the formula here, you know, and we'll, we'll have a brief discussion about uh, what we're into reading right now. And why don't you take the lead on that? Well, I will. And I, I think it's going to uh, shake up our format a little bit because I'm going to tip our hand as to what we have coming up next on the uh, Book Exchange podcast. Usually we tease it at the end and we probably will. Um again, but um, I'm reading a book by Annie Pruell, who is an author that has come up a number of times on this podcast, and we've sort of threatened to have a one of our uh, Dealer's Choice episodes, which are deeper dives into the work of a particular author uh, that we do on occasion, and um, so I hope you don't mind. Our next episode is, is going to be a deep, deep dive into the work of Annie Pruell. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. I am currently reading her best-known novel, which is called The Shipping News, uh -huh. and um, you just read it recently, so, you know, we don't have to get into it a lot now, because we're going to in our next episode, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but, you know, I'll say it, it, I've been a fan of Annie Pruel for a while, but I've never read this book, I, it, you know, it's, it, it, it's on, most people know it because it was sort of a sensation when it came out, both critically and popular-wise, I think. 
I mean, it won it won both the National Book Award, I believe, the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize, which is pretty rare. Am I right on that? You are, yeah. Okay, so that's a double winner, which doesn't happen very often. So clearly, this book left a mark on people. Uh, a lot of people were reading it in the early '90s, as as Jude has mentioned, because I think he said that that's when he read it, when it was first popular, and then it was optioned and made into a film, which apparently. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about the film and they, they tried to make it a number of times with different actors and there was a lot of, you know, controversy and back and forth to try and make it. And so the film is a little, apparently it's a little bit of a mess and that may be part of the reason why. But people remember it from because it was a movie as well, even though I don't think it was a particularly successful movie. So yeah, it, it, is, it is a story that's set almost entirely in Newfoundland up in the, the, the farthest reaches, reaches of Northeast Canada. But that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. I know you have thoughts about it, too, but um, I'm really enjoying it. It's a very interesting book, and there's going to be a lot more on that book and Annie Pruel in the future from the podcast. But that's what I'm into now. Yeah, yeah, and I'll just pick up right where you left off because my you know the theme happens to continue into my rating. And uh, first of all, let me just correct you. It's Annie Prue, as you pointed out to me on the last oh, episode. You're right. The, uh, I'm sure she's listening, so my apologies to Annie Prue. Yep, yep. I'm sure she uh, she would have written us if we didn't correct it. But, uh, yeah, the L and the X at the end are silent. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm also reading Annie Prue. You know, I'm a really big fan of hers. Anybody who's listening to this show has heard me talk about her. So we've kind of wetted the whistle for this over many different weeks. Uh, what I happen to be reading at the moment, I've got two books, you know, the, the book left in my sort of preparation for the episode. The, and I've read a few others. The book I'm in the middle of right now is the third volume of Annie Prue's three volumes of Wyoming stories. So recently on the podcast, we've mentioned before that both John and I have read and really, really were kind of, blown away by the first volume of her story set in Wyoming, which is called Close Range. It was actually number one on my top 10 books of last year, Close Range. Mm -hmm. And then there's a sec there's a second volume. So I'm, I'm lucky I have a British edition of all three volumes that I got from the other guy in the podcast today uh, who gave it to me as a birthday gift a couple years back in a like a, a hardcover sort of box edition. It's awesome. But um, You're welcome. yeah, thank you. But anyway, so there was a second volume called Bad Dirt. John had read that last year. I think it was on his list of favorite books from the year, if I remember correctly. And then I just decided, and I haven't read Bad Dirt, but I thought to prepare for the episode just to kind of cover all the bases, I would read the third volume. So that's what I'm in the middle of right now. It's called Find Just the Way It Is. And it's, you know, the third of those three collections of stories set in Wyoming. It's, uh, it's, it's superb. It's not quite the same as close range we're going to talk about the next episode and then i'll just mention uh because at the end of the episode i want to mention a different book um i'm moving from there to a anything any Prue has a non-fiction book called bird cloud which is basically about the house that she lived in in um, wyoming in which all these stories uh, sent in wyoming were penned and she had written a memoir about that house building that house and about the land that's around it. And, you know, if you know anything about Annie Prue, you know, she writes really magnificently about the land, no matter where she is and landscapes. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's a short memoir. 
and then at the end of the episode i'll tease what i'm where i'm going to go after that but yeah so it's any proof time for the two of us but we're big fans and make sure you tune in for the next episode where we're going to unpack exactly why that is so anything else you want to add john or do you want to take a break and then just move on to our main topic uh the latter let's keep it moving forward yeah so we got to do this is record time for us the first segment but that's good because you know as we tend to do, the topics are, can go far and wide, and I think we're going to go in several different directions when we talk about monsters after this break. Okay, take out your swords or your lances or your wooden stakes or whatever you need. It's time to dig into the topic of monsters, John. And I, I don't have any kind of really clever way to back into this, but I will just say one of my favorite quotes from another person that we've mentioned many, many times on the podcast who happens to be a filmmaker. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, our buddy Guillermo del Toro from Mexico, who is a famous filmmaker uh, and who knows a thing or two and tends to incorporate monsters somewhere into his movies. <laughs> well, one of my... One of my favorite quotes that you've heard many times by him is, is you know, in, by way of explaining his very deep love of and knowledge of monsters, he once quipped, you know, when I when I show up on the set of my own movies, and I'm paraphrasing, I show up on the set, if there's not a monster on the call sheet, then I just, like, leave and go home, you know? <laughs> and I, I always... Yeah, I always like that quote, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the state of mind that we're in today. But um, other than that, though, John, me, I, I don't ever. Let me let me jump in because I'll, I'll I'll see your Del Toro quote and I'll raise you another one if you don't mind. No, um, go ahead. Another thing that he sort of famously said, and, and I'm paraphrasing as well, but he said, um, and this is really interesting. He was talking about his lifelong kind of love for monsters and all their forms, and he said, you know, for Monsters for me are like what religious iconography is for many, many like Catholics and Christians around the world. You know, those image like images of saints or relics of saints that I have the same relationship to monsters that a lot of, you know, Christian believers have with uh, icons and relics and that sort of thing. So that I thought that was a really, really interesting and really revealing uh uh, insight into him, but this show is not about him, but you know, there, there's definitely a kinship there between uh, his sensibility towards monsters and I guess ours. Yeah. And I'd say at least in my case, it sort of has really informed in recent years, kind of even my own approach to creativity, storytelling and stuff. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I'll put it in a simpler way. Guillermo del Toro has become really influential 
at least in my way of thinking about fiction and where you can go with it. So like, and he's just, he's all about monsters. So. Um, yeah, and we might, we, we may touch on um, your own experience in writing about monsters later on in the show. So. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, nice tease there. So um, what I'm going to do, John, is I'm going to mention something really quick that I just have to mention. And then I'm going to kick the ball to you to start us off in terms of actually starting to talk about, you know, what this, topic made you kind of invoke from your own memory but um you know as i said earlier monsters were kind of a big deal for us in our youth and you know we weren't unusual you know like a lot of kids and uh and maybe boys but kids in general get into monsters at one point or another and creatures and drawing them etc but uh when we were children sorry john john actually wrote his own monster story about uh this bi this uh, biped lizard you know, named Toro. He was kind of, I mean, I don't know if you'd call him a monster, but it was definitely like a fantasy creature story in which he, he wrote this story called Toro Spear, which was, you know, firmly in the annals of uh, childhood fantasy. It would have been like a, a cool YA book about like this biped lizard named Toro who, you know, in, inherited the spear from his father who was killed and then he lost it. And then he enlists this uh, young 11-year-old named John Lovell to to help to go on an epic quest with him to help him recover the spear uh, this story has you know no no end and uh no terminus in our family iconography and, and our family story it's legendary but it's just interesting that you know john you as a kid you know even concocted your own monster story that still gets discussed within her own family um so with a with a nod to you know toro and toro spear I'd like to ask you to kick off the discussion. Like, what's your first area or first monster that you want to talk about today? Okay, well, first of all, I can't believe, for some reason, I'm shocked that I didn't see that reference coming at all. I, like, I should have, <laughs> if I had thought about it for two seconds, I would have known that you would probably bring it up to either to my embarrassment or, you know, just to add to this discussion. But, you know... Because in a way, what what young kid who has any interest in creativity or writing at all or keeps a journal hasn't written like a monster story in some form? It's not exactly unique, but um, it's just for some reason, I never thought that the reference to Toro's spear would come up. So that's that's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. You know, as Dead Poets says, trip down Amnesia Lane and, you know, burn that as soon as you can. Um <laughs> <clears throat> so, Never. yeah, I can kick things off, but I'm actually going to, because this, you know, this is live without a net, so who cares? But I'm, I'll, 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 I'll throw a question to you, and I know we have at least one selection that's a, a sort of a joint selection, and, and to me, the one I'm thinking of is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So, I mean, that's such an iconic and famous monster story that I, I feel like that's a good place to start. Would you be up for sort of having a joint discussion about that just to sort of kick things off or does that throw you off in any way? No, no, I don't even have a really big, you know, set plan here. No, I think it's a good place to start. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it, um, but I think right. it's a good place to kick things off. So go ahead. Yeah. So um, that's kind of like, you know, it's the first book that popped into my head. It's a, it's a that, that's a monster, quote unquote monster that everybody knows, or at least 
you know, anybody who's literate at all knows, and I don't mean that condescendingly, but, you know, has been exposed to books and, you know, has learned how to read, you know, has some familiarity with the Frankenstein story. Obviously, it's been made iconic through many, many movie adaptations, etc. But I think a great place to start with this discussion is that, you know, a brief, just booting around briefly the, the original story by Mary Shelley, which uh, a lot of people will know, but maybe some people won't, you know, the the original title of her Frankenstein stories, Frankenstein, uh, and now I'm going to, um, something about, oh, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, which right. is, that's the subtitle, uh, which is interesting because she, she takes it back to the Greek myth of Prometheus who, you know, sort of famously uh, stole fire from the gods, basically stole the gift of fire from the gods and gave it back to humanity. And for that, he was, you know, chained to a rock, a rock eternally and, and cursed by the gods. Interesting little side note, by the way, is that I didn't know this, but I just happened to see it recently that, you know, uh, Mary Shelley, uh, who's, who's the, uh, the famous poet that she ended up marrying? I'm blanking on his name right now. Is it Byron, Lord Byron? Well, isn't it? Is wasn't the famous? Uh, maybe it's Byron. I was going to say, isn't it? Isn't his name Shelley? But um, yeah, maybe it is. This is this is you know, uh, <laughs> as I said, live without a net. Yeah, uh, I don't remember either. But anyway, her her fa you know her her famous uh, husband, who is a well known poet. I guess I guess they together were early proponents of like vegetarianism. So one of the things she she thought she had a negative view of the of the myth of uh, Prometheus because she thought in, in the gift quote you know giving fire back to humans you know basically taught them how to cook and eat meat and she you knows they had like an aversion to cooking and eating meat so there's sort of an interesting under under uh, you know theme going on there as well so I thought that was kind of an interesting little bit of trivia. Anyway, yeah, it is. I, I didn't know that one. So, yeah, that is cool. Yeah, I didn't either. But anyway, you know, people know the bare bones of the story. And a lot of people would know that, you know, the way she wrote the story, she was she got together with some of her friends, happens to be in Geneva, Switzerland, where my mother-in-law is from and, you know, my wife's family is from. Uh, and they they decided to have a contest to see who could write the most frightening story. And I guess um, Mary Shelley had been interested in things like what was going on in the scientific world and sort of how it was pushing the boundaries and sort of the dark side of science. And she came up with this idea of basically this idea of a scientist who decides to attempt to reanimate human flesh and come up with, you know, kind of build a person out of parts of other people. And, and uh, that's what the story is essentially about, about a scientist who figures out a way to do that, figures out a way to reanimate flesh and, Builds a human being out of the parts of others, and then, but that human being uh, ends up having, you know, and there, there are sort of religious and philosophical overtones here. Ends up developing a will of its own and ends up escaping. And a lot of the book is basically, you know, Doctor Frankenstein trying to chase after this creature that he had made, and also, really interestingly, so. One of the things that people don't necessarily realize about the book is that it's sort of two stories in one. You get Dr. Frankenstein's story. You also get the point of view of the monster. And so right. Shelley gives you both. She has chapters that kind of 
you know, from the point of view of Dr. Frankenstein and the point of view of the creature, and they both have different stories that come together in the end in a very, very memorable way. But essentially, you know, among other things, it, it becomes a story about, you know, uh, free will, essentially. And, and, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, creating this creature. One of the fascinating aspects of the book is that the creature develops and grows its knowledge uh, over time, kind of through its own uh, initiatives. So not just reading books and learning about human culture, but also interacting with other human beings. He spends time with the family and he tries to get close to them, but they cast him out. And part that experience sort of turns him against humanity and he becomes basically a killer. He ends up murdering Dr. Frankenstein's brother. Uh, and it leads to Frankenstein realizing I have to chase this creature down and, uh, you know, put an end to him <laughs> because, you know, as, as the famous saying goes, I've created a monster. And, uh, that's what a lot of the book is. It's kind of like this chase novel, dude, that like, uh, for the second half, you know, there's a famous section where literally Dr. Frankenstein, I don't know if you remember this, but he basically chases the monster across Europe into Russia. And then they end up going north. And the, the, the story ends with kind of a showdown uh, above the Arctic Circle, like basically yeah. near the North Pole. Um, and it has this very, I mean, not to spoil it, but this is an old book. It has this very sort of both grim and inconclusive and very cinematic ending when uh, I believe Dr. Frankenstein dies in his pursuit of the monster, but the monster's last seen literally on a flow of uh, floating ice and just floats into the fog, you know, right. never, to, never to be heard from again. So you don't even know if, doc, if the creature is quote unquote still out there. So uh, it's just a fascinating story on so many levels, but I think, uh, you know, unless you've read the original, you don't, you don't really realize, you know, you, a lot of people know the story through the famous universal film from the 1930s and many, many that have come after that. Uh, but the actual novel, and I'll, I'll end it here, but the actual novel is, is, is very, it's quite philosophical. And I think quite interesting from an intellectual perspective, not just on a philosophical level, but also about sort of the ethics of science and free will. There's a lot of good stuff in it. So I've always really enjoyed it. Um, I haven't read it in a while, but I think it's really, really worthy of attention. One of the best creature novels ever written, basically. So that's I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, and I I, I concur with with all you said, and and I'll just talk kind of quickly about you know what's what lingers with me about Frankenstein um, because I read it I read it as a part of my graduate school experience. Actually, I was assigned to read it. But I was oh, well. looking forward to it. And I so I read it. And it's not a very long book, but it's not it's not an easy book. John's right. It, it It's written in a sort of an older style. It's pretty philosophical. It's it's rather erudite. Um, and one of the primary things about Frankenstein. Well, let me say this. I mean, I think it's like it's it's a book that really belongs with other classics. You know, like it it it, it can still be seen as kind of a genre book. But it's a book that's as worthy as anything else from its century or from, you know, English literature, you know, everything from Jane Austen and, you know, romantic novels or Dickens novels or stuff like that. This book belongs with them, whether it's about a monster or not, you know, just for its like, you know, interesting questions it raises and its erudition and it's uh, it's, you know, just the way she executed it. And 
Another thing that stands out about for me is that I just find it so impressive. And, you know, as you know, and our listeners, though, I look at things like this a lot of times, excuse me, through the lens of somebody who tries to write fiction also. And it's just so impressive as a feat for uh, a, a woman of that time who was very, very young and who was in this room full of other writers who were kind of, you know, you can imagine a little bit of like, you know, uppityness or haughtiness in the room among these other great poets or whatever. And yeah. uh, her getting underestimated. And, you know, I don't know if history have recorded, you know, who actually won that contest, but it seems like she went out and kicked some butt in that little contest and ended up writing like what literally a world classic. So I just find that so impressive. And oh, yeah. also you want to say something about that? No, I was just affirming it, but there's no question who won that contest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I, I meant in some kind of official way or something like that. But, you know, there's no question that, yeah. you know, she took advantage of her uh, the opportunity there and kind of blew she's everybody out of the room. You said you mentioned she's very young. I believe she was only 19. Yeah, under 20. That's just amazing to me as a novelist and a fiction writer. I mean, I don't know how she did that. You know, this is, you know, just an incredible feat of the imagination. But also, you know, and, and of course, this sort of stands to reason, John, and I'm sometimes these broader topics I'm not as good at talking about as you are. But it, nonetheless, in my mind, you know, this is the I was thinking about this a lot of a lot of monster stories, you know, if not all of them. But, you know, the majority of them and this whole topic tends to the ultimate question for me that they raise of course is like who's the monster right is it the monster or is it the the human that created the monster or the forces that created the monster who's who what's a monster and who is really a monster you know oh yeah informs almost all monsters stories written by any human being you know and this to me stands out as kind of the the quintessential of of that question you know scientists you know uses body parts and it plays God in other words and creates, creates a human being. It's like a, an act that, you know, should not have occurred. And the results, all the resulting tragedies and violence and misunderstanding and pain and struggle that results from that, you know, is something that really shouldn't have taken place. So the question becomes like, you know, is the monster Frankenstein, the monster who, uh, who's not called Frankenstein in the book, but, or is it Dr. Frankenstein, the creator? And that question sort of ripples through all monster stories. As I said, that's kind of self-evident. But this, to me, is the ultimate example of that. And I'll just close by saying, you know, if it's not clear from everything I've said up to now, you know, people really should read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point you bring up uh, about, and it is common to basically any book we're going to talk about in any book that features a monster prominently in any way, this idea of who's the monster I mean, we mentioned Guillermo del Toro and, you know, that was very, that's a very prominent idea that no one would miss in his, in his recent movie called The Shape of Water, which involves a fish, a hybrid of a fish and man, a, a creature. And there's no doubt in anyone's mind who the, who the real monsters are in that movie. It's a, it's, yeah. it, it's heavy handed, in fact, in that movie, but just to underscore what you're talking about, but, um, the other thing is that's interesting, too, is that uh, I noticed a lot of monster movies somehow end up becoming sort of weird kind of love stories like The Shape of Water, like Beauty and the Beast, you know, but that's not an element in Frankenstein. And, and, and to me, although he does 
one of the interesting things, one of the fun things about reading the original Frankenstein is kind of picking out which elements have lived on in the uh, sort of like subgenre of Frankenstein literature or movies. One of them is the, the, the second movie famously was called The Bride of Frankenstein. It was all about finding Frankenstein a mate. And that is a part of Mary Shelley's vision. There's a whole discussion where he basically uh, forces Dr. Frankenstein to start building a mate for him because uh, just like the Bible says, it was not good for a man to be alone. And mm -hmm. I, he may even reference that uh, because, as you said, you know, Frankenstein, the creature becomes quite erudite and knowledgeable. Um, but anyway, uh, so there's a whole, and he actually starts building a mate for Frankenstein. So I, I hadn't remembered that. So that's sort of interesting too. But the, the overarching, what I remember from reading this book is, is it's not horror. The, the, the emotion that stands out the most for me, it's not horror. It's not terror. It's sadness. It's a very sad book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially his interactions with humanity as all he wants to do is try to interact, you know, uh, be one of the human family and, He's shut out everywhere it goes. So it's on top of everything we've said, it's actually, you know, kind of a moving book and, and profound in a lot of ways, you know, about the human character and the way both, you know, for good and evil, I guess. So that's, I mean, we could go on for the rest of the show about Frankenstein, but I think that's, that's as good a place to start as any, and certainly a high rec recommendation from both of us. Um, and like you said, it's not that long. So if you've never read the original Frankenstein, well worth a read um so let's move on i think it is now your turn to uh choose some a book to discuss so you have the floor okay yeah and uh so where i'm gonna go from here is not actually just one book um but i was thinking about this and you know in many ways as we've just discussed frankenstein is really foundational to the whole topic of monsters of course it's not the oldest i mean you know we may discuss later you know, there are monster tales going all the way back to the beginning of civilization. But as far as I'm concerned, though, John, and I'm talking about not necessarily with my own personal history, but at least where I stand now, looking back on the entirety of my experience with this particular topic, it, it doesn't really start and end with Frankenstein. For me, if you want to talk about the ultimate monster writer in my mind, and I don't even have a ton of experience with this writer, but it, it's got to be. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft. So oh, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about his work, and I'm, I'm no expert at all. Um, Guillermo del Toro kind of is. But um, I'll try to explain why I think he's just, you know, kind of like to me almost the ultimate monster writer. Uh, it's hard to do kind of in a short space, but H.P. Lovecraft, just to get an idea of his time frame. So he's born in 1890. He only and he's from Providence, Rhode Island, and he and he only lived until 1937. So like, uh, you know, like the 40s or whatever that adds up to. Um, he was always terrible at math, but he didn't live a really long life, kind of like Edgar Allan Poe and some of these other sort of tragic figures. But he is kind of like, in my mind, sort of like the the grandmaster of monster tales. And the, the reason why I say this, his work, you know has a lot of complexity, but, and, and I can't talk to all sides of it at all, but when I've read H. H. P. Lovecraft, my experience with him in terms of monsters is that nobody that I have ever read <laughs> goes, digs their 
hands and uh, arms all the way up to the elbows into the maw of what monsters are and what they're all about deeper. And I do mean that literally, um, if you read some of his stories, deeper than H.P. Lovecraft. Um, he's the author of many, many tales. I don't think he wrote I think it was a lot like Poe in that he didn't really write novels much like the closest thing. I think um, similar to Poe is, is, and we talked about it on this podcast is a long sort of novella called out the mountains of madness that he wrote, um, which I'll mention in a minute, but he, he mostly wrote stories and he kind of started out writing literally weird tales. There was a magazine called weird tales that he wrote for in the early twenties when he was young, you know, and he just wrote these very weird and really dark and really kind of dense, to be honest, um, short stories about macabre, dark, black magic, subterranean things, all the above. And his work, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, I decided to go back and I have this big volume of his stories and there's many famous stories in it you know, at the mountains of madness is in there and uh, other, other stories as well that he's really famous for. Um, but the one that I reread is called the Dunwich horror, which is one of his most famous stories. And uh -huh. it's this sprawling tale about this backwoods town, deeply in the mountains of um, rural Massachusetts. And the story opens with just this kind of description of the town, the people that live in it. And it, refers very heavily and portentously to kind of dark magic kind of extant in the, the hills themselves and the trees and the valleys and uh, undercurrents of, you know, twisted behaviors like incest and inbreeding and all that kind of stuff. And that's he's go going off about this from the very first couple of pages. And it's a rather long story. It's like 40 or 50 pages. And it has to do the protagonist is this I don't even know what you would call it, half man who's born in the beginning of the story to a, uh, an albino woman, a single albino woman who lives with her grandfather. Um, and the, the, the father of the child is never quite known. It, it, and it's not even positive that it's human. And this child starts growing up and it is sort of almost like Lovecraft describes him as like goatish and he's unusually large and grows at a very rapid pace and nobody really knows who he is or where he comes from. And the story is about this child, but there's, a, I'm going to read one paragraph from this story. All you need to know is that this child is about 13 or 14, but it's grown up to be about eight feet tall. And it's um, been educated only by the moldering volumes in his grandfather's like farmhouse, which all have to do with like, black magic and spirits and Satan worship and all this kind of stuff. And so he learns as much as he can from those books. And then he realizes he needs more books. So he goes off in search of a famous volume of black arts called the Necromicon. And he finds it in a library at Harvard university. So he finds the book and then he holds up in the library and he starts studying from this book. And then people um, come to look for him. And when he's discovered in this library, he's transformed into something else. And that's all you really need. So I'm going to read one paragraph from this. After, so they're finding him, and he's been transformed through his study of the Necromicon. But this is going to give you an idea of the kind of writing that H.P. Lovecraft does, you know, huh. and the kind of monsters that he creates. Because this is some of the 
craziest, darkest, um, most vibrant and kind of messed up writing about monsters that I've read anywhere in the world. <laughs> so it just says, so it's talking about him from literally from the waist up. These guys have walked in and found this individual transformed. Above the waist, it was semi-anthropomorphic, though it's though its chest where the dog's rending paws still rested watchfully had the leathery reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The black was piebald with yellow. The back was piebald with yellow and black dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes below the waist though. It was the worst for here. All human resemblance left off and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur and from the abdomen, a score of long greenish gray tentacles with red sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or, or the solar system. <laughs> On each of the hips, deep set in a kind of pinkish ciliated orbit, was what seemed to be a rudimentary eye. Whilst in lieu of a tail, there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with purple annular markings and with many evidences of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind legs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians and terminated in ridgy vein pads that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, its tail and tentacles rhythmically changed color as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles, this was observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge, whilst in the tail, it was manifest as a yellowish appearance, which alternated with a sickly grayish white in the spaces between the purple rings. Of genuine blood, there was none, only the fetid greenish yellow ichor, which trickled along the painted floor beyond the radius of the stickiness and left a curious discoloration behind it. <laughs> so... Uh, all I want to say, I mean, I've, I've probably turned off every listener in the world, but I, I just think H.P. Lovecraft is amazing to me. That 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 passage gives you an example of how nuts his imagination was, and how deeply he went into the creatures because that's one paragraph from one story, and also how kind of tough sledding and uh, you know really um, dense his writing is at the same time. Um, Reading Lovecraft is laborious. I mean, there are so many stories of his that have creatures like just way beyond the imagination. And it speaks to this almost, you know, unheard of, you know, psychology and state of mind that a writer like that must have been in about humanity and where we fit into the world and whatever lies beyond this world that is literally unmatched in anything else that I have ever read. So if you have the stomach and you want to go really deep on monsters, to me, there's no, there's no one who rises above or perhaps below H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right on the mark with that, with all those comments. But on that last one in particular, we couldn't possibly have this. I'm so glad you brought him up. You know, um, we couldn't possibly have this discussion without talking about Lovecraft, you know. I mean, he is really one of the all-time masters in terms of conjuring up creatures, you know, that are literally beyond the imagination. I mean, when I listening to that paragraph, I, I was struck, you know, it made me think of like a child, you know, a young child, like 
who just said, draw the weirdest creature you can think of. And just taking like literally parts from every animal he or she can think of and just, you know, throwing them all together, attaching them together. You know, it's something like in a weird way, it's something like a child would come up with, with a set of crayons. Yeah. And that's almost how it feels when you hear that description. It's like, he's literally just throwing everything he can into the mix, but yet it's also, and, and this is true of, and I haven't read a ton of Lovecraft either, but there's a deeply, there's something deeply unsettling about almost everything he wrote, but even a description yeah. like that, it's just, you know, however weird or unnerving you, you think this creature might look like it's actually, you know, five to 10 times worse. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, and you know, the, the level of detail that he goes into too, he's just, you know, talking about, you know, cilia moving, waving, undulating, you know, mouths opening and closing and sucking and tentacles rise. You know, it's just, it's funny, but there's something very unsettling about it. And when you take a step back and you think about just what was going on in the psychology and in the brain of somebody like H.P. Lovecraft to create, to have that kind of imagination. I mean, he created, you didn't mention this, but I know you know it, but he created an entire mythos called the mythos of Cthulhu that involved different dimensions, different planets. It involved, you know, whole subterranean and um, whatever the word is for under the water, you know, uh, uh, ecosphere, you know, Uh, it goes, uh, many, many of his stories are connected to that mythos. You know, the one, the one I was thinking of, I mean, I, I thought about at the mountains of madness, which is a very strange novella. There's also a novella, I've always wanted to read, but I've only heard it described. It's called The Shadow Over Innsmouth or Innsmouth. I'm not sure how you say that. Um, but it involved, you know, it, it's about a guy who who's taking a tour. This is fascinating. He's taking a tour of like antiquarian New England. So most of his stories are set in New England because that's where he's from. Right. And specifically kind of small villages and towns. And like you said, the, the dark woods where a lot of American horror has sort of sprung from, by the way, going back to, you know, Salem witch trials. And, you know, uh, I think that book, Wyland, is set in the New England woods. But, you know, that's where, interestingly enough, you know, that's a place where the the winters are dark, the days are short. And, you know, I think there's a lot of American horror has sort of sprung from that part of the the country. But anyway, uh, the narrator of The Shadow Over Innsmouth is, is like, literally conducting an antiquarian tour of new England. And so he goes to this sort of decrepit seaside town of Innsmouth and he ends up encountering a race of like fishmen that are called the deep ones. And they're like literally half man, half fish, Mm. you know, they play a prominent role in the story and they're connected to the mythos of Cthulhu. So it's like this very, it's a vast world. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, a good luck, but B, <laughs> you know, and I was thinking too, when you were reading the description, you're right. Like, you know, 50% of listeners are going to be like, well, that's not for me. And, you know, they may turn the episode off and, and it has least, nothing yeah. for them and that's fine. But others are just going to be fascinated by it. And you and I are in that camp, you know, Del Toro's in that camp. Many people are in that camp. There's just something really interesting about, you know, uh, the kind of imagination that could think up, you know, uh, not just envision creatures like this, but, you know, uh, 
not just how they're put together kind of physically or biologically, but, but the whole mythology of it and, and what it has to say or reflect on, you know, humanity is just, uh, to me, that's an endlessly interesting topic. That's the whole reason we're doing this show. So, so uh, anyway, it's a great, it's a great choice. And there's tons there. If you want to go down the, like I said, go down the rabbit hole of HP Lovecraft. And if you're into monsters at some point you need to get to it. Yeah. And, and I'll, and, I'll break it off here in a minute and then we'll take a break and we'll have to come back and do kind of more of a lightning round of other monster books we want to cover. Although I, I believe the two works, well, Frankenstein and H.P. Lovecraft deserve the attention they've gotten. But uh, I'll just say, like, I, I was reading, I, I think I want to say, so there are other really famous long stories, one called Under the Pyramids and another one's called The Thing on the Doorstep. And, and you know, they definitely are the kind of things that run together in the mind after you've read them. But I, I think what I'm remembering is something from At the Mountains of Madness, but I had a very rare, rare experience reading one of his great stories. I want to say it's At the Mountain of Madness. But anyway, you know, when the character, you don't have to explain the whole thing. The characters like, you know, way up in the northern polar regions, they're miles underground. They're chasing this like ancient civilization. They have certain clues. And then in one part of the story they were so you're way you're way way underground way way at the northern extremes of the planet and then there were the the character discovered these like stone like pits that extended much much further into the ground and through you know just immense darkness and somehow the character could perceive at the bottom of those pits these gigantic slithering you know either bodies of a, of a snake-like creature or tentacles, but huge and like <laughs> we're talking miles and miles under the ground in the dark, slithering around. And I remember having the feeling of, I don't, know, I don't know how to put this into words, John, but it was a rare instance where I thought I could feel kind of like almost a tectonic or like, you know, much larger scale than I'm used to power of, of a metaphor. Almost like this like, immense like, metaphor sliding underneath the whatever was going on in the fiction i just remember having this feeling like this goes farther and deeper in a way than anything i can remember reading just in terms of and the fact that just came out of a human psychology is just crazy you know and um it was just so striking you know it was so metaphorically powerful i thought man this is i don't even know if i want to know what what i what i'm feeling about here or like intuiting you know it was crazy you know yeah absolutely is it's it really is crazy and um the other thing i I just have to throw this in about hp lovecraft too because um you know it should be said that uh he wrote one of the great i have to bring this up because you know in the context of this conversation because in my edition of at the mountains of madness which is uh, from the Modern Library, that series of books. Included in that edition is, is his famous and acclaimed essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature, in which mm. he, does, he does an extensive, you know, kind of deep dive into, you know, exactly what it says, you know, supernatural horror in literature from, you know, the earliest stages up until, you know, when he was alive. And it's an incredible kind of compendium 
of who some of the great writers were in that genre and some of the great books. Very knowledge, very, you know, uh, not scholarly. It's easy to read, but very um, informative. And it, it brought a lot of books to my attention that I didn't know about. So if you're interested in all in monster literature, that is an absolute must read, that essay called Supernatural Horror and Literature. So uh, it, it's really, it, it, it gives you a sense of his great intellect. Even though he's a strange bird, uh, he was deeply knowledgeable uh, about this particular genre. So that's a high recommendation for me. I don't know if you remember ever reading it. I definitely read it once. Um, and you could probably find it online, you know, if you wanted to look yeah. for it. But yeah, anyway, it's, yeah. It's, it's really good. It's really, really good. So, uh, so for okay. those, those for those who have an interest in that, you could check that out. And yeah, like let's take a break, John. Listen to a little bit of music. We'll come back and we'll start. I I would almost say the second half would be kind of more of a lightning round, but you're going to kick us off, and then we'll just see, we'll just play it as it lays. Sounds good. Okay, so John, now why don't you kick off the next round? What do you got up next on the topic of monsters? Well, I'm going to go old school again. And I realized kind of a lot of my picks are sort of older books, um, as opposed to, you know, there's tons of, you know, popular, you know, modern literature that certainly gets into monster territory. I'm sure we'll touch on some of that. But as you said, I mean, this whole genre of monsters are as old as the human imagination is. And there are so many great foundational texts that kind of uh, are still very much worth reading. And so I'm going back even earlier than Frankenstein. I'm going all the way. Actually, I should know how far back this goes, uh, but I don't remember. But it's back in, I believe it's back into the, the first millennium, you know, after Christ. I'm going all the way back to the, the epic poem Beowulf, which is, a, you know, old English poem uh, with an anonymous author. And it's one of the great, you know, human monster interaction stories of all time. And uh, I remember vividly, uh, let's see, what year did this come out? Um, one of my favorite writers that I've talked about on the podcast before, favorite writers of all time now, is the poet, Irish poet Seamus Heaney, who uh, is no longer with us anymore. But back in the year 2000, the year my first child was born, he came out with his own modern translation of the epic poem Beowulf. Mm -hmm. And I remember this being a really big deal kind of in the publishing world. And I was a huge fan of Heaney at that point. Um, I really kind of started getting into him heavily in the mid nineties. You were a part of that actually, because he gave me his great book of poems called the spirit level. But mm -hmm. when this came out, uh, you know, I was, I was over the moon. I was truly excited. And then the reception I mean, it was called, you know, one guy from the uh, over in the UK said Heaney has made a masterpiece out of a masterpiece. And the translation was it was just widely claimed everywhere you went. So 
not only did I go out and buy the book, and I don't remember how this happened. I think I had read somewhere that because he Heaney was a great reader. He had this incredible Irish brogue, and he was also basically a linguist, and maybe maybe not by profession, but you know he'd done many translations. And I think I had read somewhere if you can if you can uh, find get this book on audio where he reads it, he reads his translation. And I went out and grabbed that sucker on CD. And I remember having it in my car for years. And I would just pop it in every once in a while if I just just to hear the music of his voice, let alone the the poem itself and his translation is truly incredible. So the, my, you know, that would be my, another one of my high, high recommendations would be to, you know, seek out Seamus Heaney's translation of the epic poem Beowulf, which is, if you don't know, it's a story of a, of a, of a brave warrior who uh, eventually, you know, he's part of, uh, I think it's set in um, Denmark, I believe. And the first couple of lines, he calls the people the Spear Danes. So they're referred to as Danes. So, um, and they're being terrorized by a creature that's of the name, by the name of Grendel, who's sort of like, has sort of vague description as being a large, like, you know, preternaturally large, hairy monster with huge claws and a, a thirst for human blood, basically. And the poem describes these great mead halls where the warriors, they would go out and, you know, battle other clans. And they'd come back and they'd have these epic, you know, they'd go on these epic benders for three days and nights in their mead hall where they'd just basically drink and party and tell stories of battle until they're all just like splayed out insensibly on the ground, sleep <laughs> it off. I mean, this is literally what it's like. And they sleep it off and then, you know, wake up and do it all over again. <laughs> you know, it's just like basically Valhalla, but only here on Earth. Um, and there are some epic descriptions of like, just like, you know, drunk fests and like, you know, all night drinking. It's hilarious. But, uh, but it, it comes, you know, the story tells about how they would have these, they would, you know, be in these meat halls. They'd have these great, you know, carousings and go on these great drunken, you know, uh, feasts for a long time. And then, uh, Grendel would come in the night and he would, when everybody's knocked out, you know, drunk on the floor, he would come in and just basically like tear them apart and just eat warriors for pop them like snacks, you know? <laughs> so eventually they had to deal with this creature Grendel. And that, that's what the, the tale is about. You know, uh, one Beowulf confronting the creature Grendel, mortally wounding him. Um, and then uh, eventually there's another, you know, we're not done with the monsters after they defeat Grendel. They, they, they find Grendel's lair they go down to Grendel's lair. They find Grendel has a mother who's even worse. And they end up, you know, <laughs> battling the mother. And, uh, and then the, we're not done there either. Eventually, the, there, there's a dragon that uh, is kind of like over the entire land. And eventually there's a, a Beowulf as a much older man confronts a dragon. And in that confrontation, you know, he's killed. So that's, you know, spoiler alert, that's how, that's how it starts. So anyway, the, the epic poem of... Beowulf is really incredible and I you know this is what I do on the show Jude you know I'm going to bring poetry into it whenever I can you know because that's oh, I'm a poetry man and I'm I have no shame in saying so so I'd like to oh, read please. yeah I'd like to read a little passage from this I won't read it anywhere near as well as Heaney did obviously but I think I want to just give a flavor for the language and you know kind of how exciting it is and how vivid it is his translation of Beowulf so this is where he talks about, uh, he first brings up 
the fact that there is a creature named Grendel that is terrorizing these warriors and the problem of Grendel that is eventually going to have to be dealt with. And the other thing to know about Grendel is described in the poem as like uh, a child of Cain. So he's sort of like tied back to the biblical story of Cain and Abel and how Cain, he's like an ancestor of, or, or Cain is one of his ancestors. And so he's sort of like an offspring of Cain and Cain was cursed for all time. So therefore his, all of his uh, descendants are cursed and ended up being creatures. So Grendel is somehow tied back in a weird way to, you know, you know, Judeo-Christian traditions. So you'll hear that referenced here, but I'm just going to read the passage and hopefully, you know, people will get a sense of the language here, which is just incredible. So times are pleasant for the people there until finally one, a fiend out of hell, began to work his evil in the world. Grendel was the name of this grim demon haunting the marshes, marauding round the heath and the desolate fens. He had dwelt for a time in misery among the banished monsters, Cain's clan, whom the creator had outlawed and condemned as outcasts. For the killing of Abel, the eternal Lord had extracted a price. Cain got no good from committing that murder because the almighty made him anathema and out of the curse of his exile, there sprang ogres and elves and evil phantoms and the giants too, who strove with God time and again until he gave them their reward. So after nightfall, Grendel set out for, for the lofty house to see how the ring Danes were settling into it after their drink. And there he came upon them, a company of the best asleep, a company of the best asleep from their feasting, insensible to pain and human sorrow. Suddenly then the God-cursed brute was creating havoc. Greedy and grim, he grabbed thirsty men from their resting places and rushed to his lair, flushed up and inflamed from the raid, blundering back with the butchered corpses. So that's just a tiny taste of how vivid Heaney's translation is. I thought the whole poem was just fascinating. It's, it's just one of the all-time great, you know, uh, adventure and monster stories in all of world literature. And I highly recommend it. Now, really quickly, I want to tie, this is sort of a two-for-one deal. Much later, there's a writer who's not very well known now, but you and I both know him. Uh, for one thing, because he had a great influence on one of our favorite writers that's come up on the show named Ron Hansen. Uh, he may have been Ron Hansen, I don't remember. Um, but the name of that writer is John Gardner. John Gardner was a great novelist from the 60s and 70s and 80s. Kind of fallen out of favor, not well known now. Uh, he has a number of really good books uh, and collections of short stories. He also wrote a great biography of, of Chaucer. But maybe his best-known novel is called Grendel, and it is an kind of story, part of the story of Beowulf, but it's told from the perspective of the monster. So in some ways, it, it, it was ahead of its time. It has a very sort of modern feel, while the prose itself is kind of written in an older style. And I just said, you know, uh, Gardner wrote a biography of Chaucer, so he's deeply familiar with and immersed in, you know, medieval and older literature. And it's just, we've talked about the psychology of monster stories, but this is, you know, I just recently reread it for the show. It's a short kind of slim novel, but it's absolutely fascinating because it kind of looks at the events in the poem Beowulf from the perspective of the monster. And again, like Frankenstein, the overwhelming sense you get is kind of 
a sense of sadness or almost banishment. Here's, and in particular, he haunts the outsides of the meat, meat halls long before he attacks them. He just kind of stays there and watches what's going on through cracks in the walls. And he's totally enthralled and taken in by, uh, there's a harpist who, you know, plays the harp and, and, and kind of sings epic tales and shares sort of, you know, stories of the past of, you know, brave warriors and creatures. And Grendel can't help it. He's sort of seduced by this and he's sort of sucked in and he kept through that, through the, that art, through that, you know, the singing and the storytelling, he realizes there's a lot more to mankind than he really, than he knew before. And he feels his exile from mankind. And all he really wants is to be able to, you know, kind of forge a friendship with these men. But again, like with Frankenstein, he's just cast out and, and, uh, you know, in his rage, he ends up becoming basically a killing machine. And the book takes you right up to the, the end of the book. Gardner's book is where, uh, you know, Grendel, both, you know, in this book and obviously in the, in the, in the uh, epic poem, Beowulf, uh, his arm is torn off by the warrior Beowulf and he's sent howling into the darkness. And that's kind of where this book ends. But it's only, in terms of the epic poem, it's only, you know, the first third of the story, but that's where the novel ends. But it's a fascinating, you know, uh, kind of updating of the story, but also an, a really interesting look at, at, at sort of like the, if you, could, if you could call it this, the relationship between men and creatures. And uh, it's kind of a way to look at the creativity and the imagination of man through this kind of creature story. So... I would highly recommend both, but I, I would really highly recommend the uh, Seamus Heaney translation of Beowulf. So that was a lot, but, you know, it was, it's a two-for-one deal. So, you know, I think they were both worth mentioning. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm glad you did. I mean, uh, you know, you can take this topic any, any way you want it. You know, like, okay, so I, I may have been assigned Beowulf in high school, but I definitely have never read Beowulf, but I – do, and as you know, we joke about it a lot on the show. I'm kind of, you know, I tend to be put off by epic verse, you know, uh, stories written in verse. But although I may have something to say about that a little later. Um, but, you know, I I remember, I remember Seamus Haney's version of Beowulf was definitely a foundationally huge, one of the big waypoints in your reading life for sure. You know, I remember you making a big deal of it at the time. And I, I think you even gave it to our dad, didn't you? Didn't you give a copy to our dad? Yeah, I gave him the audio version because it's, it's in, you know, these stories were told orally. So to hear Seamus Haney himself read it is, is that is really an experience. That's actually yeah. what I would recommend even over reading it. This, you know, people find an audio version of it read by him. But yeah, I did give that to dad. Yeah, and if you need any convincing on Chambers, you can go to like the Nobel Prize website or the Nobel Foundation website has a whole page on Seamus Haney because he won the prize and you can get some audio of him, I think of him reading just some of his more famous poems. And you can find other audio of him reading online because that, that I agree, that is that is really an experience. And there, there were, you know, a handful of poets who are like that, who, you, you know, when you hear them read that, that's what really makes the difference, you know. And Seamus Haney was like that. I remember even hearing snippets of Beowulf from you at the time um, on the audio. Still haven't read it, but um, 
but I also really like that you tied it in with John Gren with John Gardner's book. Uh, I think I've I I think I've read Grendel, which makes no sense because I've never read Beowulf. But um, but I've read some works by John Gardner, and uh, the tie in there that you made too with basically you know the same condition of the exiled creature at the end that was in Frankenstein is really interesting. Also, you know, again, it brings up this question about you know like the having sympathy towards the monsters, you know, and, 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 you know, and maybe they only in their psychology, they only yearn for connection with humans, but that's like part of the whole subgenre of monster stories in the first place, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a really good, that's a really good selection and it makes sense to go back uh, to at least touch on one that's, that's that antiquated because of how old this genre really is, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. So, all right, well, we'll move on, though. I'll, I, I'm going to take it in a different direction. Um, when I approached this topic, John, I didn't, there's a whole angle on it that you could take that I sort of resisted, but this is going to be an exception, which is the idea of a monster that's not like literally a monster, but kind of a human monster. Like when people call sort of corrupted human beings monsters, you right. know, so then you could get into the whole thing with, go ahead like Hitler exactly or serial killers or you know or whatnot I didn't sort of go down this path very much but what I'm going to propose here is kind of an exception and I think this could also be kind of more of a dual topic because I had to make an exception to that and to bring up two characters in more modern fiction that are human beings but have monstrous traits that were both created by the same writer and I think you probably know where I'm going with this. Um, yes. So we've spoken a lot on this podcast at various times about the writer Cormac McCarthy and his books um, for in the 20th century and the early 21st century. He's still alive, but I think he's like kind of late into his 80s. But he's definitely one of my all-time favorite and more influential writers in my whole reading life. And he has two, um, he has two characters that, are kind of like human monsters that we could, I thought we could talk about kind of briefly, because I know you'll have thoughts on both of them. So the one of them is more famous because of the film made by the Coen brothers called no country for old men. Um, and the novel of the same title that that was based on came out relatively recently in terms of McCarthy's output, like in the early two thousands. And it had this character called Anton Chigurh who's like a, um, in the context of the story, he's kind of like a hired killer, but he is a very memorable literary character in that he's a, oh gosh, how do you even say, he's like a completely um, uh, consciousless, conscienceless um, killing machine who operates under this kind of almost borderline admirable code of conduct in which he kind of kills people kind of as a, as a living, but sort of justifies his, his murderous trade with this whole sort of philosophy about the kind of the randomness of the universe, I guess. And the, you know, the, the, I don't even know how you're going to have to help me out there, but like sort of the unknown, the unknowingness or the arbitrariness of the universe, I guess. And how there's really no meaning to our lives or, you know, each individual human life. 
um, in the context of the whole universe. Um, yep. And he kind of somehow demonstrates this code through his killings in this story and in some very memorable scenes, which I think are some of the most memorable I've read about him sort of explaining to people why basically their number is up and they have to die. And then he kills them very coldly. <laughs> um, so that's one character. And then the other character created by Cormac McCarthy is in a novel we've talked about many times called Blood Meridian. Um, and it's the, the a novel that's set in the sort of westward expansion of the United States with this marauding band of white um, uh, like outlaws, you know, called the Glanton Gang, who kind yeah, of like roam around the whole book. Say that again. Like scalp hunters. Yes. They kind of roam around the American West in the latter part of the 19th century, basically killing Indians or killing basically anything in their path, you know, and causing death and mayhem. And there's a character in the book that sort of moves among these people named the Judge with a capital J. And he's this. Now, he does have monstrous qualities. He's like human, but very huge, large. Like, you know, you get the impression that he's like seven feet tall or something like that. Very white, white, pale white, like albino and with no hair, like a hairless human, you know. And he also has he has a great eloquence and frequently sort of um, holds court up again about sort of the arbitrariness of the universe and the the laws of fate and how, you know, nobody can escape the, you know, their, their own fate and their cruel fate. And he has these long monologues where he tries to almost preach like a preacher to his, <laughs> to his point of view on these things. And many people, uh, Cormac McCarthy was a great admirer of the novel Moby Dick. So many people see his book, Blood Meridian as kind of like almost a, a bit of a retelling or an updating with the white whale taking the form of this monstrous albino creature called the judge. Um, but those two characters, both created by the same writer are in my mind, kind of human monsters, you know, yep. they, they both go around murdering people in a very arbitrary manner and a very sort of apathetic and, and a detached manner. And then they both have these kind of like codes of conduct or like, you know, philosophies, which they elaborate on at certain times. You know, Anton Shigur in No Country for Old Men is a little bit less apt to kind of hold court. But there's some memorable scenes where he does and tries to explain what he's doing. And the judge, you know, not only does he have those physical characteristics, but he he it's implied that he has kind of like immortality. Um, and at one point he's walking around in the, in the desert of the American Southwest and he's wearing this like bizarre, like, you know, head umbrella that he's affixed to the top of his white cranium that's designed <laughs> out of like, you, you see that they're, that, that it's made out of bones and like skin, you know, um, extended over his head to protect him from the sun, but there's no explanation of, you know, <laughs> who or what he could, he built that contraption out of, you know? Um, and then very famously at the end of blood Meridian, you know, it's kind of a spoiler, but you know, we've talked about the book a lot. The book ends with him literally in a, some kind of pub out on the frontier with like a bunch of drunken people. And he's doing like a jig, you know, and dancing. And uh, I think the last 
sentence of the book is he says that he will never die, you know? So it's right. sort of implied that he's kind of like Satan or the devil or, you know, the embodiment of evil. But I'm a, I'll, I'll stop and let you, because I know you have thoughts on both these characters, but those two characters in two great books by one of our, the greatest American writers in my mind, as dark as he is, to me, are kind of monsters, you know, and they're and they're very memorable literary literary monsters. I don't know. What do you think about those characters? Oh, I definitely agree. I think they're totally appropriate for this uh, topic and this discussion. And I'm I'm really glad you brought them up. I mean, there's so I thought about this before, you know, maybe here and there, but just listening to you talk about them both, I mean. I've never really, you know, explored it a lot, but uh, anybody who's a fan of McCarthy and has read his fiction, you know, maybe has thought about this once or twice, but and that is the idea that, you know, Chigurh and the judge are kind of similar characters. Mm-hmm. I even It even bounced in my mind just now for the very first time, and I'm not saying this is what he intended, but it's an interesting thought experiment. Maybe that they're, they're indeed the same character, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. and I, I know physically they don't resemble each other uh, the way they're described in the two books. But it, as you pointed out, it does say at the end of Blood Meridian, the judge will never die. And the co- sort of twisted worldview and weird sense of justice, you know, also combined with this kind of doomed, you know, sort of fatalism uh, that feels like judgment in a sense. That's something that both characters have in common. You know, and they both feel like they talk about fate and the forces of fate and, you know, in the world. But they both also feel like if they don't actually control those forces, you know, you know, they believe that they do, you know, that they're somehow orchestrating. I mean, Shigur, famous, you know, in, in No Country for Old Men, he he flips a coin, right? He, he that. He flips a coin to decide whether he's going to kill arbitrary characters or not. Right. You know, and part of that is like, well, you know, the universe will decide. Point. In fact, he even, you know, there's a memorable scene with uh, the wife of one of the characters. And he comes back to kill late in the book and he asks her to flip the coin and she says, no, I'm not going to flip it. And he's almost offended by that. He's like, well, you have to flip it. She's like, no, the, the coin don't have no say. She right. says, and he's like sort of thrown off by that, you know? So there's this sense of like, I don't know, this sort of twisted sense of like judgment or justice in the world that he, you know, pretends to be just be obeying. And yet he's also somehow controlling, you know? So, and both those characters feel that way. So that's just an interesting idea, but they both, the point is they, they both have this vague sense that they're not quite human, you know, that they're somehow even though they talk about being all mankind being subject to these forces that are beyond their control and maybe judgments, you know, that they somehow are, are outside of those things, you know, um, in a, in a weird way. And both Shigur and the judge feel that way. I mean, he kind of takes pains to describe the judge almost like literally physically as being not quite human, where Shigur certainly resembles a human and gets injured in a car accident and, you know, stuff like that. But at the same time, 
the last time you see Shakur, he's, you know, he's walking away from that injury and just kind of walks off into the down the street and out of the story, you know. And again, it's like the image of Frankenstein on the flow of ice. You don't know, does he, is he alive? Is he dead? How long is he going to go on? You know, so there is that kind of vague whiff of, you know, something supernatural almost or, or monstrous about these two characters that I think, you know, makes them appropriate for this whole discussion. But uh, really interesting examples for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and somehow I can't remember well enough, even though I've read Blood Meridian a I think three times and I think I've only read no country once, but I don't think it's explicitly said in either book. So, so the, the, the sort of the antithesis, the idea of God comes up a lot in McCarthy's books, but I don't think either character, if I remember right, maybe they do. I don't think either character necessarily like outright dismisses God or just says he doesn't exist. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember, but I would say that somehow one of the really interesting things about both characters and it is kind of like at least in one possible interpretation of McCarthy's broad range of work you could argue that they're sort of agents of the same thing if not the same character outright but I think there's an implication in both characters and in the both stories with these characters that without saying it outright if they're not agents actually of god himself they're not they they certainly weren't prevented by god for doing what they do i think there's a whiff of like suggestion that they're almost part of god's design you know or that he allows them to exist and and you know sort of wreak the havoc that they do you know now however you feel about that i think that's sort of at least floated out in both novels and it's part of what makes his work really rich not just in terms of like literary qualities but also in terms of you know existential qualities or even theological dimensions you know so yep. and and everything you just mentioned everything you just said uh demonstrates or provides the through line that goes back to something else you mentioned. And that is, you know, Moby Dick, Herman Melville and the white whale, the the white whale. Yeah. The white whale in that, in that, you know, incredible novel, it's a, you know, it feels like otherworldly, it feels monstrous, but also at times feels like, you know, part of God's universe or, and that's the way Captain Ahab speaks about, the white whale and the universe is like, you know, somehow, you know, almost God's judgment either on him personally or on all mankind, you know, um, there's this weird sense of, you know, creatureliness, you know, monstrousness, but also like divine agency almost in the, the creature Moby Dick. And in, you know, and that's sort of implied in the McCarthy stories as well. So like, all I'm saying is McCarthy, you really sense his kind of like, you know, uh, knowledge of and sort of like devotion to Melville and Novel and Moby Dick, certainly in Blood Meridian, where he makes a conscious connection with the whiteness, but also even in a character like Chigurh, you know, this kind of creature that exists that somehow is, you know, doling out <laughs> justice or God's fate or how, whatever you want to call it. 
you know, uh-huh. it's just, uh-huh. it's really interesting. I mean, you could, you could, you could make the connections between these three books for another seven episodes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's a, it's an interesting, I couldn't escape the topic without bringing up <clears throat> as an, almost an exception, those two human monsters. But um, so let's see, we got like maybe, you know, like maybe 20, 25 more minutes and you probably have a lot that you won't get to. I have, a, I have several I'm not going to get to. But what, what, what would you want to talk about next? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I touch on two. And, yes, there are other ones that I might bring up in passing. But I, I want to touch on these two. Uh, another, and I haven't read this book, so I'm, I'm not going to talk about it at length. But it's another older book that I feel like needs to be mentioned in this discussion. It's a book called Gargantua and Pantagruel. And it was written by a Franciscan monk in, I want to say, the, either the 15th or 16th centuries. And it's one of the it's one of the world's most famous monster stories. It's actually a I don't know if you knew this, but it's a pentology. It's a five book series. I think it's fascinating yeah. that it was written by a Franciscan monk, first of all, because <laughs> this one escapes me. So, <laughs> well. It's not, you know, it's not well known now, obviously, but it's one of the, you know, what's interesting to read about actually is how influential this book was uh, for other major works that you have heard of. I mean, it was very influential for Jonathan Swift writing Gulliver's Travels, um, you know, uh, all the way, you know, through some of the some of the Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke and, you know, with. They all referred to this book. James Joyce was very familiar with it. Shakespeare is very familiar with it. You know, he mentions uh, Gargantua in one of his plays. And so, mm. and when you talk about, you know, great famous giants in, in literature, you know, Gargantua would probably be number one on the list. And Pantagruel as well. But Gargantua is a giant that kind of lumbered around Europe, you know. And <laughs> he, he used this sort of like, these fantastic, this series of five fantastic tales to basically skewer, you know, everything, kingdoms, governments, the church. And he got himself in a hell of a lot of hot water uh, with the church authorities in particular for having written these tales, but they've endured. And then all the way through James Joyce, James Joyce, apparently, I, you know, no one has ever, it's like, it's like in uh, Knives Out where he says about gravity's rain, rainbow. No one's, no one's ever read that book. Well, <laughs> no one's ever read. No one's ever read Finnegan's Wake. I'm sorry if you say you have, you're lying. But apparently, James Joyce refers to Gargantua and Pantagruel in that book. So the point is, it was very influential for a long time. I mean, any any book that kind of finds its way into Shakespeare is worth noting. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. but it was a series of of tales of the, the sort of adventures of these two giants, and it just basically, you know, like. In the first one, and again, I haven't read it, so I, I, I have it on my shelf. That's why I brought it up. I, I knew it was a famous sort of monster story. I know it's one of the world classics. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I don't know if I ever will, if I'm being honest, because it's pretty large. But I was reading, like, in the first in the first novel, um, somehow the characters, I'm trying to remember, you know, they end up, you know, they, there's a whole band of, of characters and they end up going into the mouth of Gargantua and they explore like his, all his innards and they end up coming back out. I mean, it's just really wild. And it reminds you of sort of like Terry Gilliam, 
it's really wild and fantastic stuff, but highly influential. And a lot of famous books and writers that we still read and talk about today. So I just had to bring it up. I mean, I think it would be fascinating to try and read it, though it's one of these books that you probably are missing 90% of what they're satirizing and skewering in the book because you're just, <laughs> I would not be familiar with, you know, all the ins and outs of kingdoms and governments and church politics at that time. But I just thought, you know, it's on my shelf. It, I needed to bring it up. The other, so uh, I don't know if you have any comment about that. Otherwise, I'll just move on to a much more modern story. Well, no, I, I think I think we should just try to keep going. But I but I think I commend that selection because I, I never even heard of it. Or if I, if I did, I don't remember it. Well, I didn't realize it was anywhere near as influential as it was. And that's kind of the reason why I bring it up. Apparently, this, this book is really, as I've said a hundred times now, highly influential. But I want to bring up a much more modern writer, you know, a writer of our time, basically, who, you know, has only written a handful of books um, and isn't even that well known outside of, like, I guess what I would call fantasy or science fiction circles. Uh, but this guy's imagination is really something. And I'm talking about Jeff Vandermeer. And I know mm. you know who that is, but if our readers, they might hear with that name, they might recognize the title Annihilation. He was he wrote a science fiction trilogy called the Southern Reach Trilogy, in which Annihilation was the first volume, and it was made into a film a couple of years back, a really strange and I think really great movie, but very, very weird, that features a lot of interesting creatures in it. Um, but the book I want to at least mention is, is another book from him that I have read, which is called Born, B-O-R-N-E. And it's another book about a creature. The, the title creature is named Born. And I, I mean, I don't know if you know anything about this book. You haven't read this book, have you? Do you have it? No, I've heard about it. I know a little bit about it, but I know, you know, Jeff Vandermeer is living uh, guys at the, at the, uh, at the vanguard of what what they call weird fiction, that's for sure. Oh man, well, is this guy when you were talking about H.P. Lovecraft? You know, I really made the connection in my mind between Lovecraft and Jeff Vandermeer in terms of imagining just the weirdest of creatures and also describing them with an, a level of detail that really sort of sucks you in, but kind of like I don't know, it messes you up at the same time. Born is a story. Uh, I think it takes place on the planet Earth. I don't even really remember, but it's about a post, sort of a post-apocalyptic world uh, in which, like, the planet is basically ravaged, and there it, there's a, a, a company that's referred to simply as the company that had been experimenting with um, biotechnology. You know, the, the merging basically the bio. Uh, the biological realm with like technology and robotics and artificial intelligence and all their experiments went awry and basically destroyed the planet. And the planet is, you know, being overrun by just creatures, great and small of, uh, you know, uh, to try to describe some of these creatures would be, you know, I think any listeners that are remaining in this podcast, their brains <laughs> would explode. But, um, folly. For example, like he's Vandermeer must have a thing with bears, by the way. But, you know, there's there's a huge like three stories high bear called Mord, M-O-R-D, that basically roams the planet and kind of like, you know, dominates it. 
Um, that's just really incredibly described. And there, there's some human beings that are sort of hanging on, living in these like, you know, abandoned, decrepit, like uh, high rises. And they go out and they scavenge for, you know, supplies and for food and whatnot. And they describe all these incredible creatures that are like mutations. And a lot of them are, you know, there's a band of roving children that they're like half children and half like, you know, robotic parts. And they become just like a gang that sort of terrorize everybody. You know, it's an incredible landscape, but they they discover a creature that's literally attached to the hide of the sleeping giant bear Mord that kind of roams around like Godzilla, basically. Mm-hmm. And this this creature kind of looks like a sea anemone. And they detach the creature from the hide of the bear and they bring it back home and eventually kind of raise this creature. And that's the creature named Born. And there's a woman who basically takes her, you know, at first she's just sort of fascinated by this creature. They don't know what it is. She's, she's got a partner who used to work for the company uh, who does these weird experiments, but he's also like a drug dealer. It's very, it's a very strange, you know, kind of plot. But this is the description of when they first encounter this creature that's attached to the hide of the bear Mord. And it reminded me of H.P. Lovecraft. It says, it reminded I was reminded of it when you read that passage from Lovecraft because it says a hybrid of sea anemone and squid, a sleek vase with rippling colors that strayed from purple towards deep blues and greens. Four vertical ridges slid up the sides of its warm and pulsating skin. The texture was as smooth as water-worn stone, if a bit rubbery. It smelled of beech reeds on lazy summer afternoons and beneath the sea salt of passion flowers. Much later, I realized it would have smelled different to someone else, might even have appeared in a different form. So that's kind of like the first description you have of this creature. And the story is, is basically this woman is kind of raising this creature and the creature not only does it grow in intelligence and, and eventually learns how to speak and they have this whole kind of relationship, but it also morphs into different types of creatures. And you just have no idea what this, what this animal is. And what its, you know, ultimate goals are or motives. And it's just this very weird, you know, sort of dreamlike story about this. You know, they're trying to protect this creature. And then um, eventually the creature develops a will of its own. It's just the, the few books from Vandermeer that I've read, they're very strange. They're like weirdly dreamlike. Sometimes they're hard to get a handle on. But the descriptions of the of the of the creatures in these books are is really something to behold and uh in this book it's particularly fascinating because all the creatures are the result of scientific experiments that have just gone awry so there's a lot of these themes that come up you know and everything from frankenstein to a lot of the other books that we've already talked about but if you're at all interested in in imaginative fiction or, or creatures of any kind you can't miss jeff vandermeer I, I won't lie. I think he's kind of a challenge to read, but just the imagination alone is it, 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 one of the rare imaginations that I've ever encountered. Let's just say that. So that's another recommendation for you. Yeah, I'm kind of a fan of Jeff Vandermeer. I haven't read much of his at all, but like um, it's just the imagination, like you said. And uh, I remember kind of struggling through the first volume of the Southern Reach trilogy, Annihilation. But also, same here. Yeah, it, it's not easy. 
it's it's not and and you had this feeling that the other two volumes get even crazier but um you know i I would be interested though i've always kind of looked i i think i i have a copy of the third volume but i don't have the second volume in the southern reach um but some of the some of the more challenging fantastical imaginations in literature like jeff vandermeer's kind of always draw me back to some of the real foundational figures like Borges and, and Lovecraft and other writers that weren't easy to read, but they were kind of worth the investment because they were going, play, they were stretching, you know, those writers kind of really just stretch the boundaries of imagination, including yours, since reading is such a, you know, you sort of enter into the, the, you know, dialogue in a way with the, with the writer of the story you're reading. Right. And it becomes this kind of symbiotic thing. And so yeah. it stretches your imagination as well, just trying to apprehend what they're talking about, you know? And Jeff Vandermeer is that kind of writer. He's so, so I'm just saying he's somebody that I would continue to read because of that, even though I know he's going to push me out beyond where I'm even very comfortable <laughs> or understanding. But it's interesting. So I'll take it from there because you brought it sort of back up towards modern times. And I cannot do this. You know where I'm going here. I can't do this episode without bringing up one writer in particular. I mean, it's just not possible for me. Oh, yeah. But there's an interesting connection here because I was listening to you describe the novel Born. And I, I'm wondering if the bear that you described named Mord is some kind of mythological creature that's shared from a particular tradition. Because the writer I want to talk about is Stephen King, of course. Um, one of my all-time favorites, and I'll be my memory stinks, but um, you know Stephen King's full body of literature has tons of creatures and monsters in it. Um, maybe not as much as people think who aren't as familiar, but it, there's certainly tons of creatures. You know, like not all his work is about monsters or fantastical in nature by any stretch, but in his epic series that he wrote which I think he considers one of his life achievements, although I would not, called The Dark Tower, which is a seven tower, it's seven tower, you know, well, seven towering, seven novels <laughs> that I that I have read and someday will probably reread. Um, although I'm not the biggest fan of The Dark Tower, that should be its own episode, except that you'll never read them. But um, anyway, <laughs> there's a character in that universe he created in The Dark Tower that's a huge bear. And I want to say it's also called Mord. So it's either, oh, wow. either I'm not for sure, but I'm, my memory is really tugging on me. So it's either a mythological creature from some borrowed tradition, or it's an homage by Jeff Vandermeer to the bear that's in the dark tower. I'm not it's sure true. which of those is true, but, um, but it's a kind of an ancillary that doesn't play a big role in the dark tower. There's a lot of creatures that don't play. I mean, the Dark Tower is like a. My main criticism of the Dark Tower is that it's like just a. Um, almost like a compost pile. It's got everything in there. It's like a. Everything you could possibly come up with is chucked into there, and and it's and it's pretty unruly in my opinion. But anyway, um, so we don't we don't have a lot of time left. But I I can't I can't do this talking about monsters without touching on Stephen King. And, you know, like I said, there are tons of creatures in his story, um, in his in his work, you know, especially if you consider short stories, there's like crawling 
monster things all over the place, you know, and it, and a great deal of his work is derivative of some of the writers we've been talking about today. But um, so some, some of his, I would say some of his monster creations are just ridiculous. You know, this is the guy that came up with the killer washing machine or yeah. like the, uh, you know, oil slick that kills people in a short story called the raft or, you know, he would he, Stephen King would do anything. There's a story in night shift. One of my favorite books by him, which a guy turns literally into just this pile of green glop that kills people like just for no reason, you know? (laughs) So Stephen King has plenty of ridiculous creatures, but he does have one of the things I was trying to think of this because, you know, you could talk all day about Stephen King, but he does have some very memorable creatures in literature that most people know about. And he, he has this, uh, one of the things that I think is really strong about his, his creature building and his, his imagination is that he'll create monsters that, you know, uh, have these fantastical qualities and some of them tend to morph into something else that's triggered by the, the fear or the psychology of the person who's encountering the monster, you know, and, to me, the shining there's a there's a lot of examples of that in his work, but to me, the shining example of monsters for Stephen King has to be the the clown Pennywise from his epic, epic novel It. You know, and Pennywise to me, if you read a lot of books by Stephen King, has a lot of sort of like predecessors. Like for example, in his novel Salem's Lot, there's a vampire. It's a vampire novel, but there's a creature called Barlow, who's a vampire who kind of like has qualities of Pennywise. And kind of people encounter him sort of in different ways. And there's other creatures that King has created. But the novel It, which is, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, crime and punishment or uh, war and peace here. I mean, this is Stephen King we're talking about. You know, so his his novels always have a pulpish quality and they're great fun. And It is certainly a bloated novel and it's a it's a gigantic novel. But what's so interesting about the creature in It is number one, that he, well, the, the, the underlying concept in it, which makes it, I think, I, I do think it makes it one of his great achievements, is he set out, he had this idea, Stephen King has had a lot of like brilliant horror ideas, and one idea he had was to do a riff on the tale of the haunted house, but he imagined what if a, not a ha- house was haunted, but an entire town was haunted by a malevolent creature and that's where it came out of and so the 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 spirit or the malevolent spirit that haunts the town of Derry Derry Maine takes various forms in the novel more than I think people realize although it's been popularized by the the films that were made in the last few years mm-hmm. but um but most often in the novel it the 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 brilliant conceit that he came up with Although he's not was not the first person to introduce the scary clown concept, but Stephen King's um, creation of this clown called Pennywise, who has a deep history back through the centuries of this town, Derry, Maine, and as it's presented in the novel, is is one of the most terrifying creatures he's ever come up with, and it's just this malicious, malevolent killer that terrorizes these young children and then comes back and terrorizes adults. I mean, a lot of people know the story of it, but he can also take various forms based on people's fears and what they 
what they fear the most. But um, in most cases in the novel, the most fearsome aspect he takes is this malevolent clown. And it's just um, gleefully fun, monster evil. And, you know, probably my favorite example of that kind of creation in like a horror novel, just a, you know, the, the fun of reading about that character is so scary and so uh, malicious and so terrorizes the young children in particular in that book so much that you just can't, you can never unsee the character of Pennywise again. He kind of lives forever in your consciousness. So yeah. I, I had to bring him up, you know, Stephen King and uh, the, the character of Pennywise in particular. Yeah, I'm, I'm, he had to come up. I'm, I'm, you know, there's another horror writer as well that uh, should come up if we had more time, and that would be Clive Barker, in my opinion, who yeah. I don't think is the greatest writer in the world, but again, an incredible imagination. And he's, he's come up with some truly incredible creatures himself. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I never, you know, if there's one kind of really, you know, epic sort of like canonical Stephen King book that I haven't read that someday I think I'd like to read. I, I would have answered The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's actually a few. The Shining, uh, The Stand, but, you know, I tried to read The Stand once and that just, <laughs> talk about bloated. It just seems, you know, there are a lot of interesting ideas in it, but it just seems like it just goes on forever and ever and ever. And that was the unedited or the uh, edited version. Right. Yeah. But it, I, I, I don't think I really realized, and you know, that it was really about a, an entire town that was sort of possessed or haunted, you know, before. And that is an interesting idea. I, I did watch the movies that were recently made, and there's some, just a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense to me in those movies. But this idea, if the whole town is possessed, it makes a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's one scene where he's the guy's just downtown, and there's a statue of Paul Bunyan that comes to life and just starts attacking him. And when I watched it, I was like, what in the holy hell? Like, like why would that? I mean, that, that makes no sense at all. But, you know, what you're saying, if what you're saying is true, I guess it makes a little more sense. But uh, anyway, Stephen King, of course, had to come up in this. I mean, we're wrapping it up here. I, there's a number of books that I didn't get to. I mean, I might just mention a few and kind of a really rapid round, just kind of honorable mentions, you know. Uh, sure. if you don't mind. And if you have any others that you could just mention real quick, you can yeah. when I'm done. Um, one is Jaws by Peter Benchley, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that's kind of like you talked about, you know, there are like imaginary or mythological creatures and there are human creatures. And they're also, you know, there's a whole category of books that are just like creature creatures, you know, creatures we know that just have somehow gone awry, like Moby Dick, for example, and Jaws would be another Classic example. Never read that book, uh, but everybody knows about it. Killer Shark. Um, There's another, you know, really old school again, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, features among many other things, among a flood, among going through leagues of darkness. It features a uh, creature in it that is kind of a big part of it. But I decided to let that go because that may come up in a future episode that we're thinking about doing. So I'll leave that there as a... Um, I already mentioned John. Yeah, John, I have to interrupt you because I I was going to I thought that Gilgamesh was going to come up in your list today. And just to let our listeners know, 
because if that comes up in a later episode, I'll be glad. That was my mystery read this week. I actually slayed my fear of books and verse, and I went back and I read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I got from you in 2005 when my daughter was a baby, and I read that whole book. So we'll have to discuss that more if it comes up in the future. Oh, well, yeah, I I really want to have that discussion. I think that's a fascinating, you know, ancient text, and and it is going to come up. So we will get back to that. That's really interesting that you read it. I really look forward to hearing hearing uh, your thoughts on that one. Yeah. But uh, just really quickly, uh, we didn't mention it, but one of the great, you know, sort of creature stories and quotes of all time is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. We didn't even get into like zombies and vampires. You mentioned vampires briefly, but, you know, there are obviously many books that that uh, touch on those, you know, famous monsters, but we just that we just didn't get to. So stuff like World War Z more recently. Apparently George Romero was like working on a zombie novel, the, the great filmmaker of zombie movies that was finished by someone else after his death. I never knew that, but it's called The Living oh, wow. Dead. And um, there's also a, a series of books recently by Justin Cronin. I think you read the first one called The Passage. But, you know, I just mentioned them in passing. The other one, I, I have to mention this. That we, I'm sorry we didn't have time to get into it, but that's – I was searching for my copy, and I couldn't find it, dude. I'm embarrassed to say, but you wrote your own sort of adventure story. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, hey, you, you brought up Toro Spear, so, you know, turn about – Turnabout is, you know, fair play here. So, um, uh, and that's called Obsidian. It's kind of written for younger readers, but it's a sort of a fantasy story. And the second half of that book involves uh, the hero of the, of the of the story, which is a young a young teenager, basically battling this large creature. Uh, what I don't I don't remember what it was called. What, what what's the creature called? Well, it's got it's got a clunky name. It's called the Dicephalangos. And I, I looked, I looked up the etymology there. What it, it, it has to do with, uh, basically, it's a fancy way to say something that's born with two heads. So this was a creature that had like centipede-like legs, and it was a huge uh, serpent-like creature. But it had a head instead of a tail; it had a head on both sides. So yeah. that's what it's called, the Dicephalangos. Well, it's just a, it's an easy way for me to kind of slip in a plug for Jude's book Obsidian, which is actually a, a cracking adventure story. Uh, a lot of a lot of people that I know have read it and really enjoyed it. Kids read it, so you can find that book on Amazon if you're interested. But you know, if I had more time, I'd ask you about the experience of trying to write, you know, invent and write about your own creature. But maybe that's another another episode. But I had to, had, yeah. had to bring that one up. Uh, that's a fun story, and you can find it if you're interested. So that's all I had for honorable mentions. What about you? Well, I appreciate you bringing up Obsidian, my novel, adventure novel, fantasy novel. And the only thing I would say about that is that, you know, I had this idea of creating a creature that was kind of in conflict with itself while it was also in conflict with the person who was trying to slay it so that's why i gave the creature two heads and it was kind of pulling in two directions the whole time that they're fighting i thought that was kind of a fertile idea but anyway you know that that may or may not be a metaphor for this entire twinhood as well as this (laughs) podcast (laughs) right 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 yeah there was something subconscious going on there you know 
Yep, it's really yep. a representation of the Lovell brothers. You know, you called <laughs> me out on that. I never anyway, thought about um, that. That's that's pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, but thanks for bringing that book up. Yeah, no, there's just um, I have three books I'm going to mention, and I'm literally just going to mention them, or two books in a a book series. Um, or maybe one other one, but just to mention in passing, uh, these are books that came up in my mind when thinking about creatures or monsters. Um, there's a classic science fiction novel called The Day the Triffids by John Wyndham that was no, made into a, also a classic science fiction sort of Z, Z movie. But it's about, it's about these uh, plants that come alive and attack people just with malicious intent. It's a great book. Um, you know, the attack of the plants, the day of the Triffids is worth mentioning. Um, one of my favorite fantastical writers named China Mel Mieville. He's from Britain. He's kind of a weird guy. He's like a staunch communist, but he has an incredible imagination. And in one of his books, I just think this is not everybody shares his opinion. I don't think you did. Or if you read it, I'm not, I can't remember, but there's a, he wrote a retelling of the book, Moby Dick. That's called rail sea but he set it in like a dystopian planet that's so dilapidated and destroyed. It's covered by iron train railings instead of oceans, you know? So the train railings become a metaphor for the sea, twisted gnarled rails. And the metaphor the, in place of Moby Dick in this water uh, um, drained dystopian planet with all the rails above ground, are these giant groundhog type of things, you know, or um, uh, like, you know, subterranean groundhog things. And they come busted up out of the ground like whales. I think that's a fascinating idea. So, and I thought that was a great adventure story. Um, so it's called Rail Sea, all one word by China Mieville. And um, there is a lesser known and probably you know, not worth a lot of discussion, but there's an interesting book I read, much more contemporary. It was written by a contemporary English novelist, a woman named Sarah Perry. The book is called The Essex Serpent. And it's a kind of a love story, a fairly long one, sort of a epic love story that has a lot of, a big portion of the book is epistolary, meaning it's like these letters between these two sort of star-crossed lovers. But the big wrinkle in that is there's also this it's in the lake district of england but there's this like faded creature called the essex serpent that is sort of intertwined throughout the story and makes an appearance toward the end that i thought was very interesting and i think she wrote a sequel to it i forget what it's called though but the essex serpent was an interesting novel with a creature in it and then just in passing lastly to wrap it up i can't you have to, you brought up, you have to mention the Harry Potter novels. The Harry Potter novels have several creatures in them. You know, everything from like the ogre that attacks him in the first book in the bathroom to the giant spider in the woods. It's got you. And there's also the huge uh, basilisk snake-like creature, which plays a big role in the second novel and is mentioned a lot throughout the rest of the novels. So there's tons of creatures in the Harry Potter novels. So I feel like they're worth a mention. And, uh, but I think that's probably it. Um, so why don't we, you have anything else you want to add or are we good? The only thing I'll add is I meant to say this much earlier that, and I'm glad you touched on it. You know, obviously there are, you know, world renowned 
sort of fantasy series. You just mentioned one of them, Harry Potter, the Narnia books and the Lord of the Rings, among many others that feature multiple, you know, creatures drawing from all kinds of mythologies. I sort of like, in my mind, I kind of put those aside because I feel like that's almost another genre, but you, you know, I'm glad we mentioned them in passing because they certainly, you know, if you're into creatures and monsters, you'll find tons of them in the pages of those three series alone. So I'm glad you brought it up. But no, we can uh, we can take a break and then come back and wrap things up quickly. Yeah, we're a little over, but you know, there's no shortage of monsters in literature, that's for sure. So we'll take a break, we'll come back and we'll talk about what's up next right after this. Well, John, I'll just do it in kind of in reverse. We've talked already about episode 46. That's going to be our dealer's choice episode coming back. So first time we've done one on a female writer, which is great. Um, I think March, I might be wrong, but I think March may be Women's History Month, whatever, you know, whoever designated that. But it's going to be interesting to, uh, I saw that at work. <laughs> but it's going to be interesting to bring did. up. Yeah. <laughs> going to be interesting to bring up a female writer though i'm very excited to do a a, a a writer that's a woman for a deep dive and i think annie Proulx is really worthy of it and i'm going to be uh, this is not the book i want to bring up in terms of what's coming up next but i'm going to be reading her memoir bird cloud coming up soon um anything you want to say about episode 46 and you can yeah. say it if you want and then just why don't you transition to what you got up next okay and you just did what i did earlier it's annie Proulx, not Proulx. Uh, oh man! <laughs> Come on! I don't know why. It's just like the name is has such an unusual spelling, and then it sticks in your mind, and then you, you just you just want to pronounce that L. I don't I don't know what well, it is. But we're gonna hear from her. Yeah. Again, I think her. I think I just got an email from her lawyers, but <laughs> I'll ignore that for now. But yeah, we talked about it earlier. Very excited for that episode. I think it's gonna be really interesting. In my opinion, she's one of the most fascinating, you know, American writers really living and working. And she still is working. We know she's into her 80s. So, but, but uh, more on that later, as we sometimes say. Uh, and yeah, what I'm, what I'm reading next is, you know, I just, I said I'm, I'm reading a book from Annie Pruel now, The Shipping News. Annie Prue now, The Shipping News. Uh, I'm going to get to one more from her, but I'm going to, you'll be excited about this. You, you, just, you just broke on this podcast that you, had read a book that I recommended for years and years, and finally, you finally got to it, The Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, I'm doing the same thing. I haven't told you this yet, but I'm going to jam in between any Peru books. I'm going to read, and, and I hope you're sitting down because you love this book so much. I'm going to read <laughs> Aiken Field by Ronald Blythe. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> it is uh, subtitle is uh, uh, I think it's a, the story of an English village, and we w- we won't get into it now. But if you're curious why that's such a big book for for Jude here, my co-host, go all the way back to our second episode when we talk about we we talked about the books that made us in quotes, and that was the nonfiction category. And Jude go you know talks eloquently about the book Aiken Field by Ronald Blythe and why it meant so much to him. So you can go and check that out if you're interested. But I'm really looking forward. I've never read it. I'm looking forward to to reading that one. So that's up next. I'm so excited. I love that book. I really love that book, but it's going to be interesting. I hope you don't think it's a bust, you know. (laughs) From your description, I went back and listened, actually, to your description of it. And I'm super excited to read it. I Just from your description, I... I, I can't wait. I don't think it's going to be a bust in any way. I don't think so. I, I had also spent some time in small English villages in my honeymoon. And t- making that connection was really big for me, too. But I but that's a really, I you know, it's like you with Gilgamesh. I can't wait to have that conversation because that's a that's a really big book for me, Aikenfield. That, that was a really moving book, in my opinion. Um, but, yeah, that's a great one, John. And then just for me. I'm really excited too. Uh, in a way, like a, there's a book coming out this year, brand new novel, um, by one of my favorite writers, like in the whole world. Jennifer Egan is her name, and the novel is called The Candy House. And I, I'm buying that book as soon as it comes out in hardcover. And I never buy hardcovers because I love Jennifer Egan's work so much. But The Candy House is a sequel to one of her most famous famous books, which is called A Visit from the Goon Squad. We've talked about it. Um, here and there. Uh, I'll just say I would really like to do an episode on the book, The Candy House. I'll see if I can work on John with that. I might I might get somewhere because I know it has a lot to do with AI and technology. So we'll see if John will bite. But, I, I'm, um, I'm biting right now. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that for me would be I would I would go nuts. to, And I haven't read the book, um, but I've seen some descriptions of it. And but anyway, A Visit from the Goon Squad is the book that precedes it. It's a sequel to that book. The original, A Visit from the Goon Squad, is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. I think it also won another literary award. I want to say the National Book Critics Circle Award. It was a huge book for Jennifer Egan. And it's one of the most mysterious and interesting books, novels I've read in my whole life. I, it'd be, I'm not going to describe it here, but it's a, it's a book of great... Uh, ambition and imagination jumps around in time and has an unusual structure and i thought to prepare myself for the candy house that i really need to reread a visit from the goon squad so that's what i'm going to do so that's what i'm reason reading next well i'll tell you what we do that episode in the future and we probably will i'm going to do exactly the same thing go back and read that book because i remember it being really interesting and very complex with a lot of different themes and storylines going it's an unusual book so yeah again more on that to come i think uh for anybody who might be interested yeah and and then i read she was part of her new book was published in the new yorker recently and they interviewed her and she said she would actually want to write a third book about the stuff that's in which i think is amazing because i think i thought the first one is a real intellectual feat just to bring off a novel like that, but that's for a different episode. We're going to have to leave it there. 
I want to thank everybody for listening this long on the, whoever did hang in there for the, our episode on monsters is great fun, John. Good job. You kind of brought it as you always do. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Yeah. Thanks Jude for hosting. And um, I, I agree. Thank you for anyone who's hung around this long and uh, we try to stuff them to the gills. So uh, we appreciate all of our listeners around the world. So enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Yep. Until next time. Thank you, everybody. And so long.